I'm Hemant Mehta. And I'm Jessica Blimke. And you're listening to the podcast for FriendlyAtheist.com. You can now listen to these podcasts and all of our old ones and see show notes at the newly designed FriendlyAtheistPodcast.com. Rabia Chowdhury is an attorney who specializes in immigration law, and she's the president of the Safe Nation Collaborative, an organization that, among other things, consults with federal agencies about how to counter violent extremism. She writes at splitthemoon.com, but you may know her best because she's the person who brought the story of Adnan Saeed to reporter Sarah Koenig, resulting in the serial podcast— Rabia's little brother was Adnan's best friend, and their families were also close. I should point out that we are taping the show the day before the final episode of Serial airs, so if there are any surprise revelations, we're not aware of them right now. So, Rabia, did I have that introduction correct? Yeah, I just would add that um, really my primary work is at a, as a national security fellow at the New America Foundation. Okay. I'm not really practicing law right now. All right. Um, so how are you doing? I mean, everyone, I assume, who is listening to this podcast, I'm sure, is a fan of serial, which is a weird word to describe something that is actually happening in your life. Like, it's entertainment for a lot of people, but this is real life for you. So I guess my first question is, how are you doing? How is your family doing at, with the popularity of the podcast? Um, you know, I mean, it's been, I think, a roller coaster for all of us who are know Adnan personally and, um, you know, have an investment in this that's stretched for 15 years and it's going to continue because on one hand, um, the attention is great. It's bringing to bear a lot of scrutiny on the case and um, how the state operated and what the investigators and prosecution did. But on the other hand, um, you know, it's been more than three months. And so the last three months, if you can imagine, whether it's work or whether it's a social event, um, it's like the only thing people want to talk to you about. And sometimes, you know, sometimes you, there is um, folks can't seem to, they don't realize how uh, deeply painful sometimes it can be to discuss some of this stuff. Um, and they're not talking about a TV show, but they, it sounds like sometimes they, they think they are. <laughs> So it, it can be hard and it can be exhausting. And there's been a number of events. I said, you know, I just, I can't do it. I cannot go because I'm going to spend three hours talking about this, you know, serial in the case. I just don't have it in me. Yeah, it's it's so funny having you on the show because this is something I've been excited about. I have been an avid listen to, listener to the Serial Podcast. My coworkers and I get together and talk about it. Like every Thursday, that's the thing we talk about. And now having you on the phone, I'm like, God, this is and I knew it was your life. I know objectively it's a real person, of course, but it's hard not to get swept up in the storytelling of it. So yeah. my question is, when you when you sought out Sarah Koenig's help to try to look into this, do you, if you had to do it again, knowing what you know now, knowing the kind of cultural phenomenon it's caused, do you regret what you did? Because I feel like what you wanted to do was get closure on Anand's case, but what you got was sort of a story of his life and of people you who you know who else in their life has been examined. Is that what you expected? Do you regret what you did? No, I don't have any regrets. You know, the interesting thing is a couple, uh, actually maybe about a month ago, I was reading the post-conviction brief that was filed in 2010. And I mean, I had read it in 2010, but it had been like four years since I looked at it. 
And I realized that Adnan's lawyer actually cited um, Sarah's article, the same article I found a year ago when I reached out to her about Christina Gutierrez. And Sarah's name is in the post-conviction brief. And I thought, that is so weird. It was like she was meant to be. (laughs) So the fact that she was somehow connected to the case even four years ago without any of us knowing, um, to me, it's not necessarily a sign. But anyhow, the point is that I, I don't regret it. I understand that any reporter, journalist I would have reached out to is not gonna, was not going to pick this up thinking, I'm here to free this man, mm-hmm. right? <clears throat> Journalists don't operate like that. Um, so I understood what I really wanted was somebody who would have the ability to investigate in a way that we couldn't, the family couldn't, people close to the case couldn't. And his lawyer and, and his lawyers and, and the state never did, mm-hmm. I mean, to be honest, you know. Um, it's not that there weren't private investigators that were part of the legal teams. There were over the years. But... Even I think people respond differently to like a journalist, you know, than they might, you know, private detective who shows up. So I don't regret it, um, and a lot of good has come out of it. Um, some of it people know about, like the Innocence Project. Mm-hmm. Some that people don't necessarily know about, but at some point maybe will be talked about or revealed. I don't know. <clears throat> has it made? Has the podcast made your family closer? Has it upset anyone within your immediate family and your extended family? Oh, no, not at all. I mean, like, honestly, in so many ways, it's really interesting that, you know, this case, it, it was so traumatic for a non-immediate family um, and the community, you know, I mean, like, people just created distances because they didn't know how to even approach it or talk about it. And for 15 years, like, it's almost brought everybody back together. I mean, his older brother, who was really out of the picture for a long time because he just couldn't emotionally handle it. Um, he's back, and you know the family's got, the family's gotten very close again, and um, the community has stepped back up. They're like, you know, because because the community is hearing things they never knew. They did not know all these things that Sarah's talking about, right? So they're like, wow, we had no idea. Um, so they're back, and you know, even Adnan's original lawyers, his two first lawyers who had the case before Christina. Chris um, Floor and Doug Colbert, they're back. You know, they're back as advisors for his um, graduate advocacy campaign. We're starting soon. And so I feel like in many ways, you know, we've all kind of come back together because of this. And I think that's a good thing. So um, you've been listening to the podcast, obviously, because uh, you keep a kind of a blog that's coinciding with the episodes. That's right, right? Yeah, I blog over about every episode and respond to the episode and add things every week. So have you, you know, obviously you brought this to Sarah Koenig for a reason, but listening back to the episodes, have you learned anything new that you didn't know about the case? Has your mind changed about whether or not Adnan is guilty? Okay, no, my mind has not changed. (laughs) In fact, you know, let's be clear about that. I mean, if anybody's looked at my blog, they'll know that or follows me on Twitter for a single day, they'll know that. Mm -hmm. Um, you were so, convinced you know, of his innocence. Of, right, which is why you brought it to her in the first place. But have you ever had a moment well, of like, oh, uh, Of mm. course. I mean, I wouldn't spend, I, I don't have time in my life to be wasting it if I didn't think he was um, innocent mm-hmm. and had said been a great miscarriage of justice. Mm-hmm. So, um, you know, Sarah, most of what Sarah explored, I kind of knew. But there were things that I, that, for example, uh, her interview with Asia, you know, Asia McLean, who 
was uh, such a difficult, difficult thing for us because, um, you know, we had these documents from her from 15 years ago, and we, were, we had to wait for post-conviction um, appeal to file them. At that time, she refused to come and testify, and the prosecutor gets up on the stand and says, well, she called her office and said she, she was forced to make those documents. And, and just so, so a- just to remind people, Asia McLean is the person who said she saw Adnan in the library when the prosecution right. said he was off murdering uh, Heyman Lee. So she was his alibi. She was, and she was the alibi that his lawyer never contacted, and right. this was the, the subject of the very first episode. So, you know, when, when I got in touch with Sarah, that was about two, maybe a month or two after that hearing where the prosecutor said that, and that was really devastating for us because it, the judge hadn't ruled yet, but we already knew that that, like, destroyed the credibility of those documents. So when Sarah was able to get that interview with Asia a few months later, and Asia's clearly you know, corroborating everything she says in the document. Yeah. Right. I mean, that was, that was, it took my breath away, you know, to hear it. And Sarah told me about the conversation, but I hadn't heard it. Mm-hmm. I hadn't heard the interview until the first episode uh, actually aired. So there's that, there's the whole issue of was there even a phone at the Best Buy? I mean, um, you know, there's a few little things that she definitely has uncovered. Um, and also actually, they're not little things, they're all big things. Um, even all the people like uh, this guy Chris, this guy um, Will. I mean, there's all these figures, Summer, Laura, all these people that she's discovered who were never contacted by the police or by the defense, mm-hmm. who, you know, never testified. Who had, I mean, like, so her, she's gone much deeper and investigated the case, and it's so hard to do it from 15 years away, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, but, but the police and the defense, neither one of them did their job, so... So I've read a couple articles um, kind of breaking down what maybe the flaws of Serial as a podcast are. And one of the ones I read that kind of hit home with me was this prospect of like Sarah Koenig is a white woman going into a world of largely ethnic minorities and that there is, I don't know if it's flawed reporting, what would you think, Hemant? Like, it, it seems like a, uh, no, it's, it's a, there's a racial component. Yeah that you might not have expected to become a peripheral issue to this right. case because it's Sarah doing all the interviewing because mm-hmm. she's the one walking into these Muslim communities, yeah. these Asian communities. Or that she's kind of reducing, like, they were both the uh, children of immigrants, so they both were like this, and that they were, like, overly simplifying it. Do you think that's the case here? Or do you think she did a fair job of reporting it? I think she did a completely fair job of reporting it. I mean, first of all, we have to consider her audience, right? Mm-hmm. Like, I mean, she she is, she is comes into this, and she is actually self-aware enough um, to examine her own, like, you know, um, gaps in understanding and not quite getting things. Yeah. And she articulates it. And I don't know if it's always, like, really authentic. I think it's a way for her to open up people who are listening, you know, their kind of minds as to, okay, just come with me on this journey as I tell you how, I didn't really buy the racial stuff, but, oh, now I get it. Mm-hmm. And, I mean, that's a technique I think she uses. And It's an effective um, one. You know, yeah. Some, yeah, I think it's a very effective one. And I think, um, you know, I, I just find this entire, I find this entire kind of framework of a white person can't be, t- I just find it's odd. It's then, I mean, to me, it's like then, does that mean like a white attorney can never represent a client of mm-hmm. color? I mean, like, how far do you want to take this? I mean, she 
has done the best she can, and when she doesn't get something, she explores mm-hmm. it. Uh, it could be. You know, I'll tell you the truth. I mean, Adnan's attorneys have pretty much almost all been white, right? Mm-hmm. And f- even for them, like when I talk to them about the religious bias issue, they're like, yeah, well, it's not such a – no, it is kind of a big issue. Mm-hmm. So I get that people don't get it, but then you know, job of people like me is to then drive it home. Mm-hmm. So – I I really um, did not pay any attention to those criticisms of the race stuff. I think that's ridiculous because that would mean Sarah can only report on white people. I don't even understand like what what people want out of that. Like, what is your well, end also, game with that criticism? Anybody who's telling any story is going to tell it from their own lens. So if Hemant was reporting it, you know, it would be from it'd be in- a very different story. It, but I would hopefully, like you're saying, I, I would hope I could say, here's what I know going right. into this. Here's what I don't know. This is what I learned. But a criticism could be like, yeah. oh, well, he's an Indian guy. Like, yeah. how can he report on like an Asian yeah. culture like right. Hemant Lee's? I, yeah, I, but and then it's like you you have to think about it. So then who would have been like the appropriate person? Right. Yeah, Where do you draw the line? Person? Yeah. I think you said in. Person. I think you said in some interview, I mean, no one else has done this this sort of investigation, right. so why not, Sarah? You right. Know? Yeah, I think that's yeah, I don't care what color you are. <laughs> <laughs> um, what? I don't care. Just do good work. Yeah. yeah. What is your uh, ritual, I guess, on Thursday when it comes to listening to these episodes? How do you listen to them? Do you, I mean, are you in a car driving somewhere? Are you sitting at home with just no, uh, iTunes? Um, my, no, my ritual is that I get up, I get my kids ready for school, I send them off, and when the house is empty, I have about an hour before I have to get to work. That's when I just lay on the couch and I stream it directly from the website. And I listen to it, and I know at that point it's already been out for a few hours and people are already talking about it. Mm-hmm. But, you know, sometimes a couple of hours might go, but I just, I don't feel <clears throat> that much of a rush, like, you know, but I, I have to do it alone. I, I, can't, I can't do it with people around because a lot of times it's really emotional. I mean, I you know I have yet to listen to an episode that doesn't make me cry for some reason or another. So I, I want to be alone with that episode, and then I spend my day kind of thinking about it, and then I'll be checking online to see what kind of really struck people. Um, and then I'll start structuring, like, in my head, like, what I want my blog to talk about and what points I want to make and... When you say I look for. when you say you want to know what people are talking about in response to an episode, where are you going to see all that? Are you going to the serial subreddit? Are you going to other places? Yeah, I'll ch- I'll um, I'll check the subreddit sometimes. I don't always because because it's like, Reddit. Geez, <laughs> <laughs> but uh, Twitter, I'll definitely look on Twitter. Yeah. I'll look on their Facebook page, um, and even on my own Facebook feed. Right? I mean, like everybody I know is going to be talking about it. So just kind of, you know, gauge where the things that really stood out to people and they're really interested in. Um, But really, you can listen to an episode and kind of parse out the major themes that Sarah is touching on. So, How are you able to listen to these episodes? And like you said, they're very emotional for you. How are you able to do your job, I guess, right after listening to an episode (laughs) and then you have to go to work? Can you concentrate? Are you okay then? Yeah, I do my job really badly on Thursdays. <laughs> <laughs> I um, no, really. I mean, I, a number of times I've had to like Thursday's one of those days. Like I've kind of allotted to do like my busy work, so I don't have to, you know, some of my administrative stuff and mm-hmm. like running errands, and so I don't have to really focus. And a few times I've had to do some more critical work on a Thursday, and after a couple of hours, I've just given up and told my colleagues, oh, "I'm so sorry, I just." 
think right now. And also, you get, I get bombarded. On Thursday, I get bombarded with messages, oh, sure. emails, tweets. I mean, like, just it's so uh, overwhelming that you – and if you don't respond, it just it just piles up. So you almost have to kind of keep on top of it. So it, it can be – I mean, the really last three months has been one big distraction, and I'm really looking forward to – um, the the season ending actually tomorrow. Why are you looking forward to it so that you can go back to your normal life? Or uh, a question that I was wondering is, you know, are you worried that after the last episode airs and maybe after the residue of the talking about the podcast and the story maybe fades away after like a month or so? After this podcast, after this pod, <laughs> yeah, right, of course. Um, are you worried that the once the attention's gone, you'll be right back to where you started? Oh, no, that's not even possible. I mean, we can't be back to where we started because legally things have been moving. Okay. The needle has moved on, on a number of legal processes from uh, the Innocent Project on the one hand and then the post-conviction, which um, what happened was when Sarah started on this case, the post-conviction was kind of dead. And even before the show launched, um, the Court of Special Appeals um, actually had taken notice of one one issue in the post-conviction. So that already brought some life back into it. Now, like what Sarah's investigation has brought some other things that actually um, um, can make another difference. It can make a greater difference in the post-conviction appeal. So, you know, definitely we're not where, where we were. And to me, look, I mean, the show is great. It's important. But in the end of the day, it's about the case. Mm-hmm. I mean, and that that work is almost about to, like, start in a very new way, I would say, you know. Um, I think his lawyer is going to be filing some new things in the next few weeks, and then um, the Innocence Project is still doing its work, and those things will take time, and those are the things I want to focus on. Um, And then beyond that, um, you know, we have kind of a a grassroots campaign that we're starting, and I I want to put some focus on that because we've never really done that for for him. So there, there will still be things that I'm doing. I'm, like, speaking at three, four different law schools about the case, and, uh, you know, the attention, I think, is there. And, and especially, I mean, this is a local case. This is a state case, right? So the attention of the of the legal community in Maryland, and especially in Baltimore, is on it. Mm-hmm. Like, people are really, really interested. Major, major law firms have reached out and said, we are here to help however you wow. want. Um, yeah, and, you know, we have, uh, we have a, a national group that's going to be writing in, um, you know, a brief to support him on a religious basis. Uh, excuse me, profiling issues. So, you know, so for the show to end, I mean, it just means that I don't have to necessarily constantly respond because I feel <laughs> responsibility not, not to let every episode go by I, that I need to be able to fill in. I mean, tell the story fuller. You know, Sarah yeah. tells a part of the story, the story and I want to, like, compl- tell our side of the story again. Yeah, and on your blog, you've um, been posting documents that we may not be aware of just to complement what Sarah's saying or to say, you know, it. here's something else, supplement it, and here's something you may want to consider when you're uh, listening to that right. podcast as well. Yeah. Sometimes to contradict her, <laughs> sometimes, and sometimes to compliment her, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. What is your relationship with Sarah like? I guess when you brought the story to her, uh, do you communicate with her on a regular basis? Does she call you up? What's the What's that like? I mean, we communicate, I think, as needed. You know, um, when she needs something for her reporting, if, you know, I congratulated her on Colbert, <laughs> told her to wear her <laughs> <Right>. hair open. <laughs> yeah. Um, 
so yeah, I mean, we we do every so often, but I I know <clears throat> that she's literally like you know literally working on this thing like to the last minute. So she's very busy, and um, every so often, sometimes there's something that's even not not even about the show, but about the case that needs to be communicated between us, and we'll do so. But um, the relationship has been the relationship has been. I mean, I think it's almost the way Adnan kind of talked about it um, in his letter, I suppose, mm-hmm. where, you know, it's a little complicated because on one hand, you know, there's times when you're totally off the record and you're very friendly and you talk about personal things and you're like, oh, we're kind of friends. And then all of a sudden you're like, oh, no, wait a minute. We're not really friends, I think. Yeah. Right. Um, so it can be, and, you know, there is, and even she acknowledged that we talked about this one time, how there is a natural manipulation. Like, you know, when, when I speak to her, when somebody close to non speaks to her, um, we want her to think a certain way about Adnan. We want her to convey certain things about Adnan. So you're always she on guard. That. She recognizes that, and um, and so it's, you're, and then you're always thinking, you know, how is she gonna, how is she gonna portray what I just said, or how I am, or how has she portrayed me? I mean, these things are there, but you know, but I have a great deal of respect for her, and um, I know she thinks I can crush people, so I think I guess that's okay. <laughs> I don't know. So say, um, so the finale episode is airing as we record this tomorrow morning. Um, do you know what it's going to, like, do you know what she has planned for it? I have like, no idea. None. I never know. I mean, sometimes I can kind of guess um, yeah. based on the title, but I have no idea. <laughs> but so, so say she, she uh, airs this episode and says she's looked at all the evidence and from what she can see, the evidence seems to point that Adnan did in fact do it. How would that make you feel? Like, would you feel like you made a huge mistake by bringing this up? Or do you think you've gotten the ball rolling in a way enough that it would be worth it anyway? Yeah. No, I don't think, I mean, it would, if if that was her conclusion, then so be it. But her conclusion wouldn't necessarily have any legal bearing on the case. Right, right? of course. And so the, the, the value of her investigation to the case is worth even having to, like, tolerate her conclusion on that. <laughs> Um, but I know, but I, I do know that, you know, the thing is that you can look at everything Sarah's presented and some people think that, oh, but the jury must've heard more. No, the jury heard less. We know much more than the jury knew. Mm -hmm. Okay. In this case, we know a lot more at the same time, people, I mean, are almost like evenly split, like, you know, in terms of guilt or innocence. So it just shows you how fuzzy this case is. So if that was how she looked at it, that's how she looked at it. You know, I, what can I say? But it wouldn't damage the case. I do think, though, I mean, I can't imagine that Sarah, I mean, she's a very responsible person, knowing that there are still legal mechanisms that might exonerate him, mm-hmm. um, would actually even draw hard and, hard and fast conclusions. I agree. I, mean, I can't she imagine might. she's going to, I can't imagine it. she's going to land in one side of the fence or the other, which I feel like people, people I've talked to are like, if this doesn't conclude and she doesn't make a decision, right. this is all going to be worthless. And I just think that's a horrible way to look yeah. at the world. Unlike watching Lost, I would actually be okay <laughs> with there not being a, a clean ending to this yeah. one way or the other. Well, and especially, I can't imagine anybody thinks there's going to be a clean ending considering we know we can look at the news yeah. and see. All the nuance that is in this case, you're not going to get this nice wrapped up ending. Well, or even the right. fact that we just live in the world and you can look on Google and be like, oh, they're still investigating right. this case. Clearly, 
Right. So speaking of all this information, this is something I've wanted to know for a while. When you look at the commentary people are giving on these episodes, on the evidence in the case, even on Reddit, especially on Reddit, <laughs> when you see people making comments that are just objectively untrue about you, about your family, about evidence in the case that they are uh, they're taking in the wrong way, do you feel this responsibility to respond to the misinformation or are you just like, you know what? Don't you, feed the trolls. You, yeah, you can't you can't satisfy everybody. Um, how much of a responsibility do you have to correct the misinformation, objective misinformation that is out there? Yeah, I mean, I think the first maybe three weeks of the show, I felt like I had to respond to every single thing. <laughs> and it was literally, literally making me sick. I mean, I was like... I was uh, I was a real mess, <clears throat> and I and my friends could see it. And one day, my friends said, "You need to get off of Reddit because <laughs> you're not." Receiving- I mean, that's just <laughs> good life advice. And you know, and I had gotten the app on my phone, which just meant I never slept mistake at that one. Point. <laughs> and so, um, you know, because initially I thought, "Wow, there's a space and community of people who are." as interested in this as me and um you know for 15 years i haven't had anybody talk about it with mm-hmm. um and then i realized you know oh wait a minute oh no no that's not quite right that's not quite <laughs> and then i tried uh, and i realized it was just futile and i and the other thing i realized which was really weird to me was that it just seemed like i was they weren't didn't it was like it was like you said we know you know him and we know you read the transcripts and you know all the documents we don't know but we really still don't want your opinion (laughs) (laughs) i thought okay you guys just have you know enjoy your party and get it out of your system so (laughs) and i think what that is is for most of it it's it's because people are looking like like it's a tv show or something um and so it, it would it would it's like a sub for any other show maybe i guess i don't know um and so, you know, once I realized that, I'm I'm much more physically and emotionally healthy now that I'm not feeling responsible for it. Well, good. People can talk about what they want to talk about. It's okay. And and what I want to say, I say in my blog. I have a space. I, I can tweet. It's okay. <laughs> so I'd love to kind of touch on the fact that Adnan is Muslim. Do you think that played it all in the case at the time? Do you think that colors people's opinions of him now? Do you think people are still so... I don't know, judgmental or racist or whatever that they see Muslim is like, I don't know. That automatically marks him guilty or something? Well, you know what's interesting is that, um, well, interesting to me is that when, before the show launched, uh, I thought about this many times in terms of, because, you know, I've worked for many years in in advocacy for Muslims and working on issues of anti-Muslim bias and all these types of things. And so I thought, you know, I thought that when the, the show would air, that people would automatically not be able to see like, the facts and the things that happened in this case because of the optics. Like, they would see these deeply religious people like me in a scarf and Adnan was beard and whatever, and his whole community looking like that. Um, and and that would, like, we would just be like these weird religious people, and that would kind of be part of the analysis. And it really hasn't happened. And I think that's amazing and I'm really thankful that people can like, you know, love Adnan or hate Adnan but it has nothing to do with him being Muslim. Same for me. That's reassuring. But fifteen yeah, fifteen years ago, um, that wasn't the case. Fifteen years ago, I mean if you look at if you look at the trial transcripts, which I know like you know, I've I've reached on some of them, but I I couldn't do like the dozens and dozens of pages of it. Um the, the religion is what took center stage 
in terms of, like, for example, what happened here was, you know, the, the state was not able to establish that Adnan had any history of violence, right? Like, normally in a case where you have an ex or a domestic partner, like, if you have that history, it really beefs up your case. They didn't have that history. So they said, and we're going to substitute such a history with the fact that he's Muslim, which by and of itself means something vis-a-vis, you know, a man's attitude towards women. And they literally substituted his history of violence with the fact that he's Muslim. And it played very heavily. It played very, very heavily um, in terms of framing his motive, his frame of mind, the kind of human being he is. Because they had nothing else. They had this crappy testimony. They had no physical evidence. Um, and they had no history of violence from this kid. That's so, so interesting to hear because it was pre, it was in a pre-9-11 world. So in my head when I've been listening to it, I'm like, well, there wasn't this stigma against Muslims as much as there was like immediately thereafter. That's really interesting to hear. I mean, do you remember Sally Hans, what's her name, and the Sally Fields, Not Without My Daughter, and uh, the Iran hostage crisis? And, yeah. you There's know, the plenty of reason to have stigma un- against Lots Muslims. Listen, yeah. by, the, by the time I was in high school, I had already been called a fan nigger three times as a kid. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, this stuff has been around for a while. And especially, you know, this character of Muslim, mm-hmm. um, of Muslim men being really brutal towards women, that's been around forever. Yeah, that must have been my own bias because I was 14 or 15 when 9-11 happened. So that would have been the first time I was more aware of, like, racial sure. and, and political sure, yeah. politics that way. Have, have you? Yeah, uh... I'm ancient, so I, I remember those <laughs> little days. We know we know Sarah Koenig speaks with Adnan regularly about the case, uh, obviously. Uh have you talked to Adnan very much in, over the past month or two? And what are your conversations like when you talk to him? So he gets um, a limited number of hours of phone time each week. The last couple of weeks have been, um, he's allotted them mostly to uh, Sarah and his lawyers because it's been necessary. And before that, the week before that, we had spoken a couple of times. So it's really, it really kind of depends on what where he needs to give his time. Some weeks it's been his family needs, you know. Um, but we, you know, we speak as frequently as we can, I suppose. Um, and the last time we talked, uh, we talked about, um, well, we talked, you know, a little bit about the episodes, but this is about things happening in the family. His brother's getting engaged, um, and, uh, you know, his things about his older brother. I mean, so we don't always talk about, like, the show and the case. case. I've been mailing him transcripts and the blogs and other articles and stuff so he can kind of see it. And, um, you know, he expressed to me a number of times kind of, in the last few conversations, um, it's kind of the same thing that he did to Sarah. He said, you know, he just feels very conflicted. It's hard for him. It's hard for him to understand, like, what to do with her. I mean, he's like, it's really hard to talk to somebody when you're thinking, this person probably, you know, maybe thinks I'm lying about everything I'm saying. Like, mm-hmm. how do you, you feel very self-conscious and you don't know what to do in that situation. It can be very uncomfortable, especially if it's months and months, you know, a year's worth of conversation like this, where, you know, imagine, you know, that anytime you talk to this person, that person maybe thinks you're lying. It's, it's yeah. not a comfortable feeling to deal with. I think I read somewhere. So, uh, Sorry, go ahead. No, no, go ahead. I was, one of the interesting things I read about Adnan's take on this is that, I mean, realize if he went to prison, you know, about 15 years ago, 
if you say, you know, the show is trending on Twitter, if you say Reddit's talking about this, all of these things that talk about the phenomenon of iTunes and the podcast, he probably has no idea how big of a deal that really is in our society these days. I don't know if he gets the effect that the story has had on so many people, uh, how how big of a deal this is for so many people who listen to, to Serial. No, I don't think he does. Um, it's not to say that he knows what Twitter is. He knows what Reddit is. He knows what these things are. He can't access them, right. but he knows what they are because you know he, he can watch TV. He can read things. He has magazines, and you know other inmates tell him. And um, in his uh, where he was um, where he was incarcerated before, I think they had some limited uh, internet access too. So it's not that he he knows what these things are, but. He has no idea. He has no idea the global like response to this. Um, he doesn't know that classrooms are rearranging their curriculums yeah, to listen no. to podcasts and then discuss it. Yeah, no, I mean, and I'm not telling him, to be honest, and I don't no. think anybody in the family is, because we, I feel like, you know, I don't want him to think there's like a circus at his expense, you know? And, yeah. um, and I, so, you know, I, we we tell him that, you know, it's, it's, it is popular. Sometimes what I'll do, I've done this a couple of times, where I'll just pull up the hashtag Free Adnan mm. on Twitter and just print print out a couple of pages of tweets, you know, wow. this kind of boost of morale. But, um, but no, we don't tell him. He doesn't, I don't see how it would serve him. On, but, you know, he's getting letters, too, and I, I don't know how many he's getting now. I know the first month or so he was getting, he says like four or five a day, and so that was getting wow. hard for him to respond to because he feels very compelled to respond to every single one. Um, but don't you feel like that? Sorry, don't you feel like if he got out tomorrow, it'd kind of be like, like, say he walked out of prison tomorrow free, wouldn't it be kind of like the Truman Show? Like, everybody knows who he is, and people have been like (laughs) studying his life. And he, I mean, he clearly has some idea, but I don't know. That's just such an Uh, interesting thought to think. Yeah, yeah. I think you know, and I and I and I have enough faith in people. I might be wrong here, but that if he were to walk out, people would give him his space and privacy for a little bit. Let's hope. I mean, yeah, this I hope happened, so. Yeah, <laughs> this happened to the West, Mem- West Memphis Three on some level. Mm. Um, and, you know, I can imagine that, you know, God willing, he comes home, that he needs, um, that he gets time. Maybe he even needs to go to South America for a little, yeah. <laughs> disappear for a little bit. Maybe he deserves um, a vacation after he, all this. He just, Yeah, yeah. So... Um, I don't know, but I think it's important that people do um, continue to pay attention to what happens in his case. I hope they do. Rabia, we have one final question for you. As a lawyer, uh, how has your view of the practice of law changed as a result of Adnan's trial? You know, the case was so botched. What does that say about our, our justice system? And we've seen plenty of examples recently of it not quite working how we want it to. But how does that affect you as a lawyer? You know, I mean, I'm so tremendously disappointed in the prosecution and the investigators in this case. Um, and it's not that this is the first time I've ever encountered. I'm like, you know, we've plenty of plenty of stories of, of things like this. I mean, innocent people have been executed, right, um, mm-hmm. based on faulty faulty investigations and and poor prosecutions or even corrupt prosecutions. Sure. Um, the Innocence Project wouldn't have work to do if those things didn't exist. I think for me, what's even more important, though, is for people as a legal community to pay attention to the failures of Christina Gutierrez in this, because 
the job of the defense attorney, the job of your counsel who is representing you, whose life, I mean, you're putting your life in that person's hands, is to keep those systems accountable, to keep the, the, the prosecutor in check, to keep the investigators in check, and to take care of you the way they would defend their own life. Mm-hmm. And that was Christina's charge, and she didn't um, fulfill it. So, you know, I hope that lawyers lawyers are listening to this and seeing seeing how badly we can fail, you mm-hmm. know, a client. <coughs> I, I know I haven't said that was the last question, but I have one more. Um, I, I was chatting with a couple of friends, and one thing we kept landing on was how different would this podcast, would this story be told? Because Christina Gutierrez, his defense lawyer, passed away a few years ago. How different would this story be if she was still around? I mean, if she was still around but had been disbarred, I don't know how different <laughs> it would be. You don't. <laughs> I mean, for her to be alive or not alive was kind of not the, you know, it was really her being disbarred. It was her getting, breaking the record in Maryland for the number of attorney complaints, mm-hmm. um, client complaints against attorney. So I don't know if it would have been. I mean, she was. Um, it's not like her was, reputation uh, wasn't already on paper yeah. and in the records. I'd be so curious right, to hear right. her. It, come to her own defense on how she handled this case, you know? I don't know. Yeah, but... I mean, if, if, she, if she she could defend herself, but she would have had to, she would have had to defend herself against all the 28 of those claims. And that's, you know, one thing Sarah didn't really look deeply into some of the other complaints. Mm-hmm. But, you know, I, I, I'm, you know, it's not about, it's not about attacking somebody who's deceased. It's mm-hmm. about holding somebody accountable for a job they were supposed to do, a job they were well paid to do. Mm-hmm. And, you know, parents entrusting their kids lies to her. Um, so I, even if she was alive, if she was alive, I think she would probably want to hide. Yeah. She would want to hide I because, so I mean, her record was still there. Mm-hmm. Rabia, thank you so much for joining us. And thank you and your family, I guess, on behalf of so many people yeah. for bringing the story to Sarah and uh, letting us kind of experience this firsthand so we kind of get a sense of what what has been going on in, in your life and Adnan's life over the past 15 years. So mm-hmm. thank you for your contribution in that sense. Everyone can read Rabia's response to the podcast at her website, splitthemoon.com. And uh, again, thank you so much uh, for uh, everything for you brought me. to this I table. Yeah, thanks for your time and thanks thank for your you. story. Thanks, guys. Appreciate it. Thanks for listening to the podcast for FriendlyAtheist.com. This episode was taped at Cinnamon Sound Studios in Aurora, Illinois. The music was composed by Brad Chagdis. If you like what you're hearing, please consider making a contribution at Patreon.com slash Hemant. That's He-Man T. We appreciate your support. And if you have any questions, feel free to email us at FriendlyAtheistPodcast at gmail.com. I'm Hemant Mehta. And I'm Jessica Blumke. We hope you'll join us next time.